Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. I'm Doug, and I'm not AI generated. I'm real. It's good to have you with us as we are thinking through God's Word together. Good morning, Lewis. Hey, Megan. Jenny Bates, welcome back. Good to see you again. Hey, Caitlin. Ozzy Navarro, good morning. Buenos dias a todos y usted. Good morning, Edgar. You and Edgar ought to speak some Espanol together. Hey, Ken, good to have you with us. So we are wrapping up Romans 11, and here's what I want to do today. I want you to see this little uh, doxological burst by the Apostle Paul and see it in its context, and uh, we'll, we'll see how long that takes, and then uh, we'll have time for questions today, if not today, for sure tomorrow on anything through these last several chapters. Uh, I've seen some questions on the, in the comments, and uh, I like how some of you are answering each other, and I think that's great. Um, feel free to add more or bring them here. But I want you to see how awesome God is. And by awesome, I don't mean that in the colloquial sense. You know, like uh, the Broncos are awesome or my new Christmas gift is awesome. No, no, no. Awesome means someone is so wonderful. See, even that word, someone's, the wonder and the majesty and the splendor and the glory is so great that it causes you to be in awe. You can't speak. You can't respond. You you don't know what to do. It's the kind of thing that makes you kind of withdraw and, and grow quiet a bit. Uh, those of you who are my age or so, you may remember the uh, the first leg of the uh, the first Iraq war, and they called it shock and awe, right? Trying to strike fear in uh in the enemy kind of thing awe here's what paul says in romans eleven thirty three: oh depth of riches and wisdom and knowledge of god so i'm not going to recap everything just yet but think about where we've been in romans especially these last few chapters And Paul's culmination here is God is so wise and his knowledge, it just surpasses anything that we can comprehend. The depth of riches, it's so deep, his his riches, his wisdom, his knowledge. And notice what he says here, how unsearchable his judgments. Now that's that's a word that can mean discernment. It can also mean uh, like a judge pronouncing judgment and making decisions. And notice the word he uses to describe God's judgments. They are unsearchable. Not really hard to search out, unsearchable. 
his ways, his paths. The road that he decides to go down or to take others down is untraceable. Not difficult to trace. Untraceable. Now just let all that settle in. Paul here is is stepping back, reflecting on what he has just written about Israel and Gentiles. And he has this little burst of praise that has to come out. Oh, the depth of riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. His decisions, his judgments, his verdicts, you can't search them out. The paths of God, you can't trace them. Now remember, I pointed this out several times. Let's go back and see it again in verse 25. He says, I want you to know this mystery. Now it's translated here secret in the uh, literal standard, but it's the word mystery, something that was hidden that has now been revealed. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to know so that you don't grow arrogant that Israel has experienced this partial hardening until the fullness of the nations may come in. Right? So that's something that was hidden that's now been revealed. Israel is going to be hardened. That means they are not going to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and receive the benefits of the Messiah. The nations are, they're going to, ta- they're going to accept Jesus, like the Romans. And this is all a mystery. This is something that was hidden that's now been revealed. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, just as is written. They'll come forth out of Zion, one who is delivering, and so on. And here, as regards the good tidings or the gospel, Israel are enemies on your account, you Romans. As regards the divine selection, God's sovereign choice, they are beloved. Israel is beloved on account of the fathers, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable or without regret. For as you, Romans, also once did not believe and now found kindness by the unbelief of these Jews, so also these Jews now did not believe that in your Roman kindness, they also may find kindness for God shut up together the whole to unbelief. God took Jews and Gentiles, Israel and the nations, and imprisoned them all to unbelief. Why? That to the whole he might do kindness or mercy. This was always the plan. Oh, the depth of riches and wisdom of knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, how untraceable his ways. For who knew the mind of the Lord? Who knew that? Who was able to penetrate into what God was thinking and figure out the plan? Think about what he's just said. God sends the Messiah, the long-awaited, millennia 
They have waited, certainly for the Israelites in particular, century after century after century, they were waiting for the Messiah. And he shows up and they hang him on a cross. Almost total rejection. They don't want him. They don't want the kind of kingdom he brings. They don't want the kind of salvation and deliverance he brings. Who would have thought? And then the majority of the believers in the Messiah, in Paul's day, were Gentiles. Who would have thought? Who knew the mind of the Lord? Who became his counselor? Now we have to remember, counselor in the Bible, the Bible knows nothing of our modern-day therapist. Now that's a, that's a Freudian pursuit. No, counselor means someone who gives military counsel, strategic counsel, advice on how to pursue the goals you've set? Who has said to God, hey, here's the better way to do this plan of the gospel? Or who first gave to God and it shall be given back to him again? In other words, who first loaned something to God and now God owes them something? Does God owe the Jews anything? Did they give something to God and now he owes them? Did the Gentiles give something to God and now God owes them? Of course not. Now, I said Paul is sort of spontaneously here erupting in this doxology, but he's not doing it quite as spontaneously as it might seem. Remember, this is a mystery that was there but hidden and has now been revealed. He's drawing inference from Isaiah 40. It was there. All of this was there, but it was hidden. And Paul now has seen what it all means, and he's marveling. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go back and walk you through some Isaiah here again. You know this passage, right? Starting in verse 1 of chapter 40. Oh, comfort, comfort my people says your God. They need comfort because the first 39 chapters, the oracles that have been spoken by Isaiah at this point have been largely judgment. There have been glimpses and visions of hope, but a lot of judgment, a lot of suffering coming upon God's people. But now he says, comfort, comfort my people. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The Lord has poured out his righteous indignation on Jerusalem, but it has all been spent. Therefore, there's comfort for his people. A voice is calling. What is the voice saying? Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. All right, so now you have the vision of, of someone screaming out and saying, like a, like a herald, you know, make way for the king. Make way for the Lord. Go out into the wilderness and declare that the Lord is coming. Make a highway from the desert for God because he's coming. Let every valley be lifted up. So 
think, you know, if I, I could put the camera out there and show you the valleys by Pike's Peak, bring that, like, like fill it with dirt and raise it up so that you don't have to go way down into the depths. Bring the mountains low, flatten it out. So no one has to do any hard climbing here. Let the rough ground become a plain and a rugged terrain, a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh will see it together. Isn't that interesting? All flesh here, probably referring to all mankind, not flesh like we've seen in Romans, but all everyone's going to see it. When, when the glory of the Lord shows up, everyone's going to see it, like maybe Jews and Gentiles. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. Then I answered, or then he answered, what shall I call out? So someone is being told to call out here and he wants to know what should he call? Here's the call. All flesh is grass. Men, humans, Jews and Gentiles are all just grass. All its loveliness like a flower of the field. Flowers bloom and then boom, they're gone, right? The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. Call out and say, look, all you humans, you're just there for a moment and then poof, you're gone. The grass, grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands literally into the age. The word of our God. It's not as though the word of God has failed. Are you tracking with me? It's not as though the word of God has failed. No, the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news or good tidings or gospel. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news or good tidings or gospel. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. When this one comes, look at him. There he is. He's your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. This whole imagery is of God as a mighty warrior who's gone out and conquered the enemy. And now he's bringing his booty, his spoil with him, his reward to share it with his people. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. Remember, this is a vision of comfort. He's going to shepherd his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs. He'll carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Who is this God? Well, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? The waters of the sea he's talking about. So, so just hold out your hand like this. And if you're listening via podcast, just put your hand, palm up out in front of you. And make a little cup, like if you were going to scoop up water to drink it out of a, you know, a faucet or a, you know, maybe brush your teeth and don't have a cup. And so you, you have to fill your hand with water to bring the water up to rinse your mouth. All right. So hold out your hand like that. And imagine being big enough that you could scoop up 
all the waters of the oceans of the earth into your hand. That's how big God is. All the, all the oceans on planet earth, all the seas, all the water, he can just hold it in his hand. He's marked off the heavens by the span. The heavens. Like if you go outside and you just look across the sky and he gets out his measuring tape and he's able to measure the sky. He's calculated the dust of the earth by measure. He's got a measuring cup for the dirt on planet earth. And weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. God is so big, he's got a set of scales that he can weigh the mountains. I, again, I could show you the, the Rocky Mountains right out my window. <laughs> Imagine being big enough to just go pick them up and put them on a scale. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Now, that's from the Hebrew. The Greek says, who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who knew the mind of the Lord? This is exactly what Paul quotes in Romans 11. Or as his counselor has informed him. Nobody, right? Nobody knew the mind of the Lord. No one has counseled the Lord and advised him and said, hey, here's how you should do things. With whom did God consult and who gave him understanding? Who taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? I mean, think about how much time you and I spend learning, learning facts, trying to become wise, to know what's true and to make good decisions and what is right and what is wrong. Who taught God? What's the obvious answer? Nobody did. Nobody taught God. Nobody instructed God in what wisdom and knowledge and justice are. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. All the nations, the billions of people, just a, just a drop in a bucket. The regard is a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Imagine just reaching down and picking up Hawaii and dangling it from your hands. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. You could burn all the creatures on earth and it wouldn't be enough to satisfy God. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded, regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. <laughs> Think about all the false gods. We've got to go carve them out of rock or wood and do it in such a way they won't fall over. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he, the Lord, who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He reduces rulers to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Oh, do we need to remember this today in, in the midst of all the chaos and corruption in all of our governments today? God's not freaking out. He's not scared. He's not wondering what in the world's going on here. He's not intimidated. Let us not be either. Scarcely, scarcely has it been planted. Scarcely has it been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. All grass in the earth, he just whoosh, 
you're gone. To whom then will you liken me, that I would be his equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Imagine having a name for every star in the sky. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. So why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Jacob, if the Lord is this great and powerful, and he knows all the stars by name, and, and they come out every night because he whistles for them and says, you, come, Jupiter, Saturn, Mars, come on, come out. Every day he does that. And Jacob says, but he doesn't care about me. He doesn't know what I'm going through. He doesn't understand what's happening to me. Do you not know? Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired? His understanding is inscrutable. Not hard to scrute. <laughs> You cannot comprehend what God understands. And he doesn't grow weary. He doesn't tire out. Everything is happening according to plan, just as God desires. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. So you're weary, you're tired, great. Wait upon the one who will renew your strength, right? Though youths grow weary and tired, even the youngest of us, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord, the Lord is coming. Right? Call out, the Lord is coming. Isaiah 40 will be fulfilled. Just wait. And the ones who wait for him, they will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. But it's not just for Jacob. Coastlands. Far-off nations, listen to me in silence. Let the peoples gain new strength. See what's going on here? It's not just Israel that is part of God's coming. They're not the only ones who will be strengthened by the Lord. Let them come forward. Let them speak. Let us come together for judgment. Who has aroused one from the east? whom he calls in righteousness to his feet. He delivers up nations before him and subdues kings. He makes them like dust with his sword as the wind-driven chaff with his bow. He pursues them, passing on in safety by a way he had not been traversing with his feet. Who has accomplished or performed and accomplished it? Calling forth the generations from the beginning. Who is the one who called forth Generation after generation after generation, way back at the first one. I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last I am he. The coastlands, or as it says in the Greek here, the nations, the Gentiles, have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They've drawn near and have come. Each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. So the craftsman encourages the smelter, and he who smooths metal with the hammer encourages he, him who beats the anvil, saying, It is soldering, it is good, and fastens it with nails so it will not totter. That's the idol maker. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I've taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not 
rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously wait, look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous hand, my righteous right hand. Behold, all those who are angered at you will be ashamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. You, you will seek those who quarrel with you, but not find them. Those who war with you will be as nothing. For I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do not fear, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. So Paul has that all in mind, and he says, I now see the plan. I would have never figured this out in a million years. What was the plan? Messiah is coming for Israel, and they're going to reject him. That was the plan. Because God had been storing up wrath for the Jews going all the way back to the prophets, indeed all the way back to Moses, the Ten Commandments, and the Golden Calf. And he poured out his final fury on ethnic Israel in 70 A.D. And the vast majority of the Jews of the first century were hardened to the, to the truth of Christ and the gospel and were rejected by God. But the chosen received his grace. And that hardening opened the way for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. And many Gentiles, many, many Gentiles received the gospel. They accepted the Messiah. They received righteousness from Christ. But when the final judgment came upon Israel in 70 AD, the hardening was lifted. And since that time, the gospel has gone out into the world and Jews and Gentiles, Jacob and the coastlands have been increasingly coming to faith in Christ. And now there are millions, if not billions, of believers on planet Earth and growing. And Paul says, I didn't know, as I read Isaiah in the past, I didn't know until the Lord opened my eyes to see this mystery, and now I see this was always the plan. Oh, depth of riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, how untraceable his ways. For who knew the mind of the Lord? Who became his counselor? Or who first gave to him and it shall be given back to him again? Because of him and through him and to him are all things. To him is the glory for all ages Amen. So if, if you ponder what we've been discussing in Romans 9 through 11, and you scratch your head and say, wait, I, I don't understand. What, are the Jews as people or not as people? Is the gospel for the Gentiles or is it for the Jews? Or, what do we do with them? Why would he send his, his Messiah and then harden them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Well, I don't understand. And Paul says, exactly. 
You weren't supposed to understand. Who knew the mind of the Lord? Who could have understood this? You couldn't have. Just stand back and be in awe. Back to Bible says this really makes it hard to be pessimistic about the future. Amen and amen, brother. So stand back and be in awe and then say, okay. The Lord is working out his plan just as he said, and he is calling the nations to Jesus. And he's calling the Jews. See, I'm persuaded this gives great hope for evangelism to Israelites. Because I think in the first century, it was very hard to convert a Jew. Because they had a unique hardening by God. But I believe that hardening has been lifted. And so we must preach the gospel to the Jews. Jeff Plaza says, how does that deal with partial hardening that we see today in ethnic Israel? Well, I would, uh, I would say oops, it's no different from anybody else. So again, let me repeat what I said a moment ago. I believe there was a special and unique hardening on Israel in the first century. I believe that hardening has been lifted. And now all nations, including Israel, are in the same place before God. They are dead in their sins and trespasses, and they need the gospel. So I guess I would say it this way. It, it boggles my mind when the Jews saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, and their immediate response was, we have to stop this Jesus character because people are going to start trusting him and believing in him. Just let that settle in for a minute. How many cemeteries have you been to? How many funerals have you been to? Have you ever seen someone buried and then four days later walk up and shake your hand? No. Jesus raised a man from the dead, took him out of the tomb. And the Jews' first thought was, we have to stop this man. How do you explain that? Well, God hardened them. It was a judicial blindness. That has been lifted. And now we preach the gospel and should expect more and more people to come to faith. Jeff says, so thankful that he is calling us from the nations. Amen, brother. Ken says, is the meaning of until in 11.25 different uh, when used along with an era subjunctive verb, which is the case here for has come in? Uh, different from what? So the, uh, the has come in, let me get back there. Uh, it's subjunctive uh, because it's not, uh, uh, how do I explain this? Um, it's not so much about actual time. Yes, yeah, exactly, you got it. It grammatically can denote a goal or objective, thus Paul is not telling us how long Israel will be hardened, he's telling us why, In, indeed. But when you tie that together with the uh, quote from Isaiah 59 and 27, that's where I think we get the timing that this is all gonna culminate in 70 AD. Yeah, very astute, very good. All right, uh, our time is up. Bring your questions, put them in the comments, or bring them tomorrow, and uh, we'll kind of go back and review all this and interact with any other questions you may have. Uh, we'll do that tomorrow. So have a great day. Ponder the awesomeness of God and rejoice.
Auf Wiedersehen.